From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, taking another look at something that happened in Vancouver's False Creek. Quite a spectacle when people all around that area saw smoke and saw several boats in False Creek on fire. Take a listen to Assistant Chief Ken Gemmel. He is with Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. As we know, False Creek has, has many uh, many vessels anchored in the creek. Um, you know, the you know federal law does prohibit it. We, you know, they're not supposed to be anchored there, um, but it's 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 kind of a weird jurisdiction because not you know not everyone is is wanting to police that, especially federally, provincially, or municipal. But you know, when these things happen, it will you know it will come to light with the media, and it will come to light with our citizens in Vancouver. There's at the time of day uh, with um, you know the, the sun shining, it was quite spectacular. Like I say, multiple multiple phone calls to our dispatch system, so you know everyone you know everyone was aware. Um, you know, who was living downtown, there was a heavy smoke involved. So, you know, it's going to come to light. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're going to have to, you know, keep an eye on some of these, uh, some of these vessels on the water and make sure that they're safe. Again, Assistant Chief Ken Gemmel with Vancouver Fire Rescue Services talking about the boat fire, the several boats that caught fire in False Creek. Joining me now is John Rowe, the director of the Dead Boat Disposal Society. John, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Jill. I haven't heard from you for a while. How are, how's the world treating you? Very, very well. How about yourself? Oh, I have no complaints. You know, the uh, last time we spoke with the Alouette River there, we didn't get our funding from the province, but the federal government, the receiver of REC, stepped up, and the whole thing's going out the tender here. So a little project that we're hopefully done before the end of the year. So, yeah. Well, that is some good news. I'm glad that you were able to join us to talk about this, uh, the boat fire that happened in False Creek. I know there's also, uh, we heard from Surrey that uh, they are cleaning up the derelict boats in the Nickelmeckle River. Uh, we can touch mm-hmm. on that as well. I'm curious, though, when you when you heard about or saw the footage of these boats that caught fire in False Creek, what was your reaction? I, for safety, for sure, you know, is my first concern. Was anybody injured and things like that? And then after that, it, you know, comes down to is a boat, you know, it's obviously from the pictures I have, I got notified pretty instantly when it happened because of our website and things like that. But yeah, I, you know, was concerned about injuries and things like that. Now we have to deal with the boat. So what are we going to do and how much is it going to cost? And it goes back to what we talked about for is who owns the boats and, we should be like cars require you're insuring them for end of life. Well, and that was one of the other comments that wasn't heard there, but chief Ken Gemmel was asked about that as well. What happens with these boats now? And he said, it will be up to the owners. They're, they're leaving them where they are for the time being, but it will be up to the owners to deal with them. But how much of a challenge is that in that? Don't we often see boats that are smashed up or not usable and they are just kind of discarded? It's endless on this coast. You know, we only have about 350,000 registered and, you know, probably another 50,000 unregistered. And I I guarantee you we're probably 1% of that is laying on the bottom, you know, at least 4,000 somewhere on our coast, you know. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's every time I go out, I find more, you know, they don't send me out anymore because I come back with more. So anyway. <laughs> It's a standard joke with the crews. <laughs> well, and he said too. He said in that in that clip that they're not supposed to be there. But nobody, whether it's at the federal level, the provincial level, or the civic level, nobody seems to want to deal with this. So why is that? Do you yeah. think that I know you get called and you deal with this? Why does nobody else want to deal with it? Well, I got I pulled up a report back from February seventeenth, two thousand. I I was actually kind of sat on this committee many many years ago. 
and it was talks about who owns what and things like that. So this is a problem we're having. Is the federal government is finally stepping up and dealing with this through the receiver, Rex and Coast Guard. You know, albeit slow, but they're still doing it. But it's a province that lacks the you know the will to be able to do that. The seabed, I thought the seabed was owned by the the Vancouver Port Authority, but it's not. It's actually the seabed is owned by the province and technically by law. If you're going to put anything on our seabed, you must have tenure or permission from the province. It's as clear as a bell, you know. So everybody tendencies to forget this. And the other thing is the municipalities do have the, the right to regulate, too. So they can go in and say no mooring, and then they have to enforce it, of course, through the same systems that we we use. When we're talking about the different levels of government, though, is that something that also becomes a bit of an issue in that if we're looking at False Creek, where these yeah. boats are, there are rules there. I forget exactly. It's, was it two weeks of every month? You, you're not supposed to stay there indefinitely. But then I know people will go out and just pass the Anukshuk in English Bay. Then it becomes federal territory. So people will take their boats and be in federal waters and then move back. And it seems like there are ways to get around the rules. Well, that's the mistaken part of it is that the BC, there's a few harbors that like the Vancouver Port Authority is a federal harbor, Victoria is a federal harbor, Nanaimo is a federal harbor. They they control the seabed. But the rest of the thing is in BC is we own the seabed as a province, as a, you know, a nation. It's one of the few in the, all of Canada. So everybody says it's federal responsibility, but as soon as you, if you're anchoring, it's one thing, you know, for you're allowed to anchor by law and it always will be. But anchor turns into mooring and turns into addition. It's it, The majority of this falls on the provincial government. They're just not stepping up to the plate. Right. So they are the ones that should be actually monitoring this or doing something? Yep. 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 As soon as, they, as soon as the ball goes on the ground, it's like a tenure for a dock or anything else. You still have to go through a process. Lots of people don't, and they get caught eventually. But, you know, there's no difference. Up to about 1994, you had to make application to the B.C. Uh, provincial lands at that time for to put down a mooring ball. And you had to go through the process. Is it eel grass bed? Is it, in, is it going to interfere with traffic and everything else? And about 94, 95, the problem stopped doing that. And all of a sudden, oh, it's not our fault. It's the, pro- it's the Fed's fault. It's not been and never has been. Hmm. Uh, the uh, assistant chief also said that part of the reason that the boats were being left there, at least for the time being, was that they didn't pose or it doesn't appear that they pose any kind of environmental risk or danger. Uh, what are the dangers, though, of having these derelict boats uh, floating around? Just, you know, hopefully the person has the the resources and things like that to take them and dispose of them. It's not a cheap anything to do cheap, especially in urban centers. Um you know, and hopefully they don't, you know, the bad weather's coming and, and the winds start blowing and things get full of water real quick, especially when it's open to the environment like that. So sinking on the ground, for us, it's the, you know, fiberglass, regardless of what everybody says is, is you know, once it's in the salt truck and things like that, it starts breaking down. You know, we have showed repeatedly the sciences of this stuff breaking down and, you know, I'm learning a bit more about endocrine disruptors, which are hum- affects the hormones in male and female sort of thing, in fisheries and all that. So it's an endless, it's a pollution, and we need not, A, don't let it sink in the first place. So hopefully the person's got some resources. Right now, you know, we don't have a thing, so... Right. Although I, I would think I think people would agree. Hopefully they do. But the fact that those boats have been in there and there, there have been some pretty banged up boats in False Creek, yeah. some of them tied together, uh, little yeah. kind of floating, little floating villages and such. They, it doesn't appear that people are paying that much attention to them. No, not at all. The province, 
you know, if there's somebody, even the federal government, if there's somebody living on it, they just won't deal with it. It's too much, you know, old, you know, too many people unhoused sort of thing. So they they turn, you know, they just look the other way. And you can't blame them, actually, because, you know, the, somebody will kick up a fuss online or whatever else. They're kicking them out. Or, you know, there's got to be some sort of standard here. You know, when you own a boat, you're responsible for it. You should be in the minimum of who a license number plus insurance on it, period. Yeah. And a life certificate of some sorts. Which makes yeah. makes sense. And uh, yeah. this is also coming on the heels, uh, this boat fire on the heels of the announcement, uh, again, of the cleaning up of derelict boats in the Nickelmeckle River. I, yeah. I, I, get, I think we tend to think of them being smashed up on beaches and in Falls Creek, but not as much in rivers and kind of more protected places. Ooh. But that's a big issue, too. No, it's uh, since Alouette River there, we've been up doing our drone work. I've been back and forth. And, of course, we pull up all kinds of satellite imagery and things like that. So we're starting to inventory what's on the Fraser. It's mind-boggling, Jill. It's just like, oh, my God. It's like, really? You know, I thought somebody was taking care of this. and It, it ain't happening. It's just not. You when you say it's mind-boggling, just are, are they everywhere? What kind of things are you seeing? Oh, old abandoned docks and foam and things like that. There are bits and pieces of boats all over the place. You know, boats, no, lots of places, no tenure sort of thing. They've got old rotten old docks and filled full of old boats. And for us, it's always been, you know, we're, our organization has always been about water quality and going up the Fraser, finding out that there's no end of pipe sampling of storm drains and things like that. I, I, I was just, I, I take it aback. I've spent three months since I last talked to you on doing research and trying to, oh, something's wrong here, you know. We don't have a plan. <laughs> Fraser, the mighty Fraser feeds a lot of people, you know, and it affects us over here on the on the uh, Gulf Islands and things like that for contaminants. We're getting heavy metals and endocrine disruptors and things like that. It don't come from around here. It's coming right directly from the Fraser, so. It's time to put a plan in place, hopefully. Another plan in place. <laughs> well, maybe our next conversation can be about that and if there is any progress made. John, we'll leave it there yep. for today. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. Take care of yourself. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, starting today, stage four water restrictions are in place on the Sunshine Coast. That means things like the outdoor use of drinking water is now prohibited. As residents are told, they will need to conserve water until further notice. Joining us to talk a little bit more about what that looks like is Silas White, the mayor of Gibsons. Silas White, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what does this mean uh, for residents as far as with stage four water restrictions? And uh, I think we're talking about 20,000 people, maybe a, a bit more. What does this mean for residents? Well, I, I should be clear that I, I am the mayor of the town of Gibsons, and uh, we, uh, we are on stage two here. Uh, but I'm also on the, uh, the, regional, the regional district board, and uh, our residents are very concerned about regional water. And we have an agreement in place to share our water uh, with, with the uh, regional district residents as well. So uh, it's, it's a uh, very strong concern to us. But um, over, over in the um, SCRD uh, water system areas, uh, reliant on Chapman Lake, Lake, which includes the district of Seashelt, um, the, the, the most significant change in stage four, um, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, is, is outdoor use of water, um, which, uh, which definitely affects farms um, and uh, and it affects uh, anyone anyone watering plants, uh, which uh, which is a pretty challenging time of year to have to uh, make that make that adjustment for people. 
Right. Okay. So and so the parts of the Sunshine Coast then not not Gibson's going to stage four, but so, so we're talking about Seashell, Roberts Creek, Half Moon Bay, those communities. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and there are other communities. Uh, uh, um, so yeah, there there are some. Some communities that have well water um, in, in different, certain places, but uh, in general, uh, the rest of the Sunshine Coast Regional District, uh, other than the town of Gibsons, um, and uh, relies on the Chapman system, uh, with the exception of Tender Harbor. Okay. And do you find people are generally... So at stage two, what, water, what restrictions are in place then for Gibsons residents? Um, it's it's much, much lower for stage two. Uh, we're restricting. Uh, we we allow outdoor use of water, um, watering um, watering gardens and uh, and lawns uh, on uh, on um, certain days of the week, uh, limited times, a couple days, couple time periods a week, um, um, and we've we've restricted things like you know watering your driveway or a sidewalk that it's really um, or your or, or washing your car at home. Um, which uh, is, is really not uh, not necessary when we're in times of drought. Right. And is the fear that the water will run out, or is it that this is uh, the reservoir, this is the levels, and it's making that law last, and this is just necessary to make sure it's going to last? Um, I don't think, you know, at, at stage four, uh, there's not necessarily a, a fear that the water is going to run out. Um, we have been in state of emergency, uh, before, like uh, last summer, uh, the Sunshine Coast uh, Chapman system was in a in a state of emergency. Um, that is that's when the province uh, provides direct assistance, and there's there's definitely uh, concerns that uh, we'll we'll run out of water from that that main source of Chapman Lake, and uh, a lot of work is done in in, in order to uh, uh, find ways to to <laughs> make up for that. And, and in our case, uh, the town of Gibsons uh, is is very involved in that uh, um, that emergency planning because we have aquifer water here, uh, which is not so affected by drought. Uh, so um, we have an agreement in place to supply water uh, to to the rest of the Sunshine Coast uh, should that need uh, become uh, uh, become to come to the forefront. Right. And I think I recall what back was it last year when you we talk about the state of emergency was that when we were also talking about businesses like breweries and businesses that use a lot of water that they were also facing restrictions? Uh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um the there's uh it when when it when it hits that point uh um businesses like like breweries or, or um car washes uh um need need to uh restrict their use uh so yeah, right now um, there's there's definitely a concern that uh, um, out, you know out, outdoor water use uh, does does affect them. And, and but we're not at that point then, or or do you anticipate that it is possible that even though we're into September, is it possible that it could get to that level again? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's possible. I mean, I, I can't predict the weather; nobody can. Um, um, and I'm not a meteorologist either, but uh, but I don't think even uh, I, I haven't heard anyone, um, you know, I haven't, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge in, in the way climate change is, is um, affecting weather patterns so significantly in recent years. And it makes makes it harder to predict. Uh, um, but if but if we see uh, if we see a year like last year, the drought could uh, could last well into the fall and even into the winter.
You mentioned farmers, and I know that there are farmers on the Sunshine Coast very concerned about what the, those that fall under the Stage 4 restrictions, what that means for them and for their, their plants and their crops. Is there any kind of leeway given to farmers or, or kind of a, a window where they, can, they might still be able to water a bit? Or is it as of today, that's it, no more outdoor watering? Uh, there, there is. Um, I'm, I'm not actually the expert on on uh, FCRD water restrictions. Um, that's the, because we're in the town of Gibsons, um, and uh, there, there is definitely a window. But uh, I, I can't provide that that the, that the board approved earlier this year. But I can't actually provide the details on that. Um, I did uh, from from my position, though. I've been I've been advocating provincially um, uh, in kind of in my role as the mayor of Gibsons. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's kind of my, my most significant role in regional water in, in writing, uh, being in touch with the province um, and writing the premier about uh, um, just concerns that we, we hold here in the town of Gibsons, but, but coastwide and, um, and seeking the province's support. And uh, we've been successful on some fronts, but not on all fronts. And that's just been, Deeply disappointing. And and so, what fronts? Where have you been successful, and where not? Well, we asked uh, in, in on May thirty first. We really wanted to get it get in, get ahead of this uh, because uh, we're we're in a position here on the Sunshine Coast where we can be um, relatively confident, sadly, uh, that we're going to be in 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 a drought uh, because that's been happening uh, year after year. So we wanted to get ahead of it on May 31st, and, and uh, I wrote a letter to the Premier uh, asking for just some simple approvals on uh, um, requests that we'd made that were scientifically backed. Uh, one, one is the, uh, to um, allow uh, a siphoning um, for Chapman Creek should we reach that, that, that need later in the summer, and we probably will. We're getting prepared to do that. They did approve that. Um, one was uh, final approvals for a new well, uh, which has been able to help uh, significantly uh, this summer. So we, we are in a better position than last year because of that. Um, but thirdly, there was a request for environmental flow needs uh, adjustment, uh, which, is, which refers to the, the, the flow that, that the SCRD needs to maintain in Chapman Creek in order to support fish habitat. Um, and now the SCRD has been investing um, money in in uh, in getting getting scientific evidence of what is actually needed for uh, for the salmon habitat at different times of the year. And that there's no doubt that when when the fish are in the creek, uh, we need uh, we need environmental flow, uh, a strong uh, environmental flow, which is actually 200 liters uh, per second is the number. Um, and the SCRD doesn't dispute that. But uh, earlier times in the summer, we could be saving uh, significant water, especially in June and July. Uh, we could be saving up to 40, 40 liters per second. Hmm. Um, and uh, we've, we've made that case. We made that case to the province in May. Um, and the province uh, suggested that they'd be able to get, get a decision on July the 7th, which would have been perfect timing, um, to, to when the storage starts to uh, go down and we still haven't got a response yet. And uh, that's, that's where we could really use some help. 
Well, it sounds like it. And certainly I know there are a lot of questions being asked about Chapman Lake and about whether or not there there is a way to increase the capacity and, and to, to deal with it that way or at least have more water that way. And it sounds like those questions are not being answered. They, they aren't. Um, and, you know, I have to give the province a lot of credit because they, they got back to me quickly when I wrote that letter. Um, within the, month, the, the next month, uh, there, there was a, an excellent response, an encouraging response, saying they would have a de- decision um, by July the 7th. And that, that, to me, implied that all of the processes they needed to, uh, they needed to go through in order to make that decision uh, could be done by July the 7th, but uh, uh, when I followed up later in July and even in August, uh, there were all kinds of other kind of gatekeepers uh, introduced into this scenario and uh, and bureaucratic procedures, which uh, seem to have nothing to do anymore with the reality that we're um, always we're always facing a drought in a state of emergency here. Because what are the downsides or what are the concerns why they wouldn't just say, yes, this is like you said, there's been experts opinion on this. This could be done. What's what is the the holdup as far as why this wouldn't be approved? Good question. That's my question, too. And and, uh, that's that's something that I think, uh, you know, this this summer, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, you know, it, it, it really drains provincial resources too when we're, when we're, we end up in a state of emergency. Um, so it's in the province's interest to really help us save water earlier in the year. Uh, but that I, I think the biggest problem is there isn't, uh, there isn't unity um, and, and a common understanding within the provincial bureaucracy uh, that, that this needs to be the priority. Um, there, there are, it's definitely the minister recognized, the minister of forests recognized it. And, um, I presumably the premier did too, by passing passing my letter on to that, that minister. Um, but, uh, but when it gets down to other, other branches and departments of government, uh, they don't seem to share that same sense of urgency. Uh, is it also, uh, are we talking about an area where the population has grown a lot in the last few years, especially uh, people moving to the Sunshine Coast and there is more of a demand for water? That, that's, that's a factor. Um, and then, of course, in the, in the summer, we have a lot of tourism, too. Um, there's, uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're, we're, most, we're really strained for water in the summer. Um, we, we tend to do well uh, the rest of the year, except with the exception of last year, when the, the lake froze over um, while while the drought was still simultaneously going on, um, so so it wasn't wasn't getting replenished at the level that it should have. So um, during the summer, uh, we we do have we do have uh, plenty of tourists here. Uh, tourism is really important to our economy, and uh, there has been some growth uh, on definitely definitely there's been growth in the sunshine coast uh, um, modest growth growth I would say compared to the rest of the province um, but we should be able to sustain that um, especially especially through conservation um, I think we can we can do a lot more there and uh, and in the town of Gibsons we do have water meters um, and uh, volumetric billing so people are people it's it's, it's, it's in everyone's interest to get their water usage down. Um, and that, that is being extended coastwide, uh, but it's not in place yet. Um, 
we probably by the end of next year, I think is the target for um, for meters to be in the district of Seashelt in particular. Um, and, and that so that should see some change in the future. But in the meantime, uh, we we could really use all all the support we can get uh, um, before we get there. These 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 large infrastructure projects take time, and they're taking more and more time because of supply chain issues and workforce and. And it is harder on the Sunshine Coast because we're uh, we're somewhat geographically isolated uh, too. Um, it's uh, not easy for construction crews to just kind of uh, uh, drive down the road. There's this this challenge of BC ferries, which I'm not going to get into, get into on this call, but. Uh, uh, I, I, I do talk to CKNW about on, on other occasions. Yes, uh, another big challenge, definitely, yeah. uh, for, for a whole number of reasons. Um, Mayor White, so j- just to kind of to recap then, it does seem, like you said, this is something that it seems is going to happen every year. Uh, unless these these efforts or, or changes are made, uh, changes or, or potential solutions that you, you have put forward, I mean, is that the case? That's kind of where we're at at this point, to expect these uh, more severe water restrictions unless uh, you kind of get to the root of the problem um yeah yeah absolutely i mean i we i think province-wide too like i, I we, we do need to put this in context too that um we we have been kind of the thin edge of the wedge for a while um and i've, I've heard provincial officials rightfully recognize that um but now now there are but this year there are quite a number of communities in the same situation that we're in um, and, uh, and I think water restrictions, uh, definitely we do need to recognize that's going to be a way of life in the summer. Um, when I, when I talked earlier, things like, uh, you know, watering sidewalks or washing your car in the summer, these, these, these aren't so necessary when we have, uh, unquestionable, uh, climate change causing drought right across the province. Um, and uh, people's people's usage of water does tend to go way up in the summer, and especially when there's a drought. Um, and we all really need to consider our our water usage and and uh, um, conserving is definitely part of the solution. And we can't just take it for granted uh, that uh, um, whether it's a provincial government or a local government, that kind of major infrastructure projects to uh, to get more water uh, should be the solution because that, that's even harder due to climate change as well. All right. Well, Mayor White, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks, Joe. Have a great day. We have been talking about housing this week, but specifically we were talking about the tiny homes in Vancouver that were approved a couple of years ago, still not really off the ground, certainly not operational like they were supposed to be. Yesterday we talked about a tiny home village in Victoria where the lease has now expired and that will be moving on. A good news story though, people who had been living in that area in those tiny shelters most have moved to permanent housing and a bit of question though, questions about what what the future of that tiny house village is going to be. We've also been talking about modular housing and Pete Fry, who's a Vancouver City Councillor, joined me in studio on Wednesday and talked about the fact that modular housing, what we thought it was when it was first built in some areas, well, it didn't really live up to all of the promises. This provides a level of shelter that's quite dignified and, again, rapid to, to deploy and most saliently, I think, also rapid to uh, disassemble. So they can be disassembled, stored, set up somewhere else. And and we know now uh, that the temporary modular housing that we've approved across the city of Vancouver, it's not really uh, reusable. 
turns out that it, it, it's going to just go into shelter and be repurposed somehow, but it can't just be picked up and moved to another location, which I think many of us thought when temporary modular housing came out, that was the model. It was going to be a, a modular unit that could be picked up, put on a truck, moved to another location and set up all over again. Clearly, that's not the case. Joining me now to talk more about this is Michael Geller, a real estate consultant, also the president of the Geller Group. Michael, great to have you back on the show. Jill, it's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for your interest in this topic. Well, I know it's something that you have spent a lot of time looking at and talking about. And when you heard that, uh, you responded to it as well. I'm curious your thoughts on the fact we were building this or approving this modular housing with the idea that it could be dismantled and moved. And as you heard the councillor there, not the case. What happened there? So just by way of background, I first started studying this idea 53 years ago. It was my university thesis. And then in the election in 2008, I proposed the idea as a way to house the homeless during an election campaign. And as a result of that, BC Housing showed an interest and funded a study And what we looked at was a concept somewhat similar to the housing that they use in work camps in northern B.C., northern Alberta, and also to some degree similar to the concept of school portables that I know you've been interested in as well. And the fact is, this housing that's used in the work camps or used as school portables, these buildings are set up and then they can be relocated after a period of time. And that was the concept. Now, what happened, though, was the housing, as the government regulations were imposed, they said they have to be sprinklered, they have to be made more and more like permanent buildings. Unfortunately, all of those improvements, if I could call it that, that's what I believe led to them becoming harder and harder to relocate. The initial concept was one or two-story buildings at the most, The city ended up building three-story buildings, and that's where I think part of the problem arose. Right. And, but some of those things sound like, like safety issues, and it's a good thing, isn't it, to have things like sprinklers and other things installed in those? It is a good thing. But what happens is as you add more and more regulations, the housing becomes more and more uh, expensive, and then it also becomes, to some degree, uh, more and more difficult to relocate. I think what's important is to think about this not as a replacement for permanent housing or even as an alternative to permanent housing, but think of it as something that's a heck of a lot better than being in a tent or being in a shelter or being in an SRO. That's how it was conceived. As a, as a sort of interim solution to help address the more urgent problem of finding some decent accommodation for people who are currently in tents along Hastings Street. Do you think then one of the, the temporary solutions then, would it be better if we were looking more at the tiny homes and uh, homes like that, that uh, granted they don't have uh, kitchen facilities, uh, cooking facilities or washrooms, that's part of the, the bigger village, but it seems like they are easier to, to put together and to dismantle and potentially move. I think so. However, if, as you correctly point out, we shouldn't dismiss the importance of safety those tiny homes don't necessarily start having sprinklers and things like that. And, and I think that's fine. I mean, I know people will say, don't I care about fire safety? Of course I do. But 
you know, so many of the, the accommodation or the lack of accommodation that we experience is so severe, I think some kind of temporary solution would be worth considering. But I think there's a place for the tiny homes, but I also think there's a larger opportunity using accommodation like those work camp units. It's interesting. When I first proposed this, Jill, in 2008, Jean Swanson uh, was very much opposed because she thought it would look just awful. And then when I showed her pictures of what it could look like, especially if the units were wrapped with murals to look like parks or forests or whatever, she then opposed it because she thought it might look too nice and become permanent. And uh, my point is it shouldn't be permanent but it surely there's opportunities to set up some modules on vacant land and relocate it over time. And, uh, and that could work. That could definitely work. But what's happened, as I understand, some of these modules have actually been put in storage. And the suggestion is, well, maybe they'll be sent off to other communities around British Columbia rather than be used in Vancouver. And I think that's unfortunate. And when you say the modules, do you mean the, the modules from the modular housing or from the tinier homes? From the modular housing. Right. Which, which, which I think most people, when they see them, they almost look like permanent uh, structures. They're three stories high. They're being landscaped and so forth. They're very, very nice. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, if, if they can't be reused and relocated, then I think then that's a failed experiment. When they have the the improvements, then if you're looking at the the modular housing again, if, because of the the sprinklers and the fact that they've become a, a bit more the, the complicated and uh, so they can't be taken apart and moved, does that mean that they would have a longer lifespan potentially? And I know then we're getting into leases and parking lots and pieces of land where they're they're situated. But could the actual structures then last longer? Well, we are. We are actually, I mean, using modular construction or factory-built modules for permanent housing. And I was just reading this morning about a development in Burnaby. So factory modular housing is a legitimate way to build. And indeed, it's used throughout the world. The concept of using modular housing as a temporary solution and relocating the units is somewhat unique. And it's interesting, uh, when I first proposed this idea, of course, I looked at where, other, where else had it been done, and it hadn't really been done. But what I suggested to people is, if you think of the idea of the temporary community gardens that get set up on vacant land, and the landowner gets a break on their taxes, and then in three years or five years, a permanent dwelling goes on those sites, why not think of using those lands in the same way for modular units. And they didn't, they don't have to be so elaborate. Use units similar to the ones that are manufactured, as I said before, for work camps. And they often get relocated many times and are perfectly good. And uh, I think there's, it's not the solution, but it is certainly better than the situation we have now, where there's a lot of people being forced out of tents and nowhere to put them. Right, because even if you were looking at it, if, it, if it's good enough for a work camp and for people to live in it in a work camp scenario, maybe it doesn't check all of the boxes when it comes to uh, the safety standards or standards for permanent buildings. But is it still not better than being on the street or living in a tent? Absolutely. And in fact, 
the, the if you look at the designs of some of the units, they have different standards. So some of them have simply bedrooms, and maybe there's a bathroom at the end, or there's a separate building that has the bathrooms and the lounge area. But some of these work camp units have a little 10 by 11 room and a private bathroom. And the bathrooms are small, but they're interlocked. But you, you actually get a very small, but very livable and decent self-contained unit. Now, people look at that and said, oh, it's too modest. It's not sufficient. And that was the thinking in Vancouver. Rather than use the plans that I developed with BC Housing, which were essentially based on the standard Britco units, they developed these much more elaborate apartments. They're lovely, but instead of costing $45,000, they cost $400,000. And now we're discovering they can't be relocated. So I think it's unfortunate. Uh, Do you think it's too late to go back and try this again? Or where do we go from here? No, it's definitely not too late, which is why I'm so pleased that you're raising the topic. There are, there are solutions, and, and the tiny houses as well. I mean, there's solutions there. I mean, the sad irony is that the tool shed in my backyard, a prefabricated little building that I bought at Rona Hardware, provides a better standard of accommodation than the tents that people are being living in right now and then being forced out of. I mean... You know, the interesting thing about tiny houses is there's something quite appealing about the concept. And that's because when you look inside them, they can actually be quite, quite nice. But it's shelter and it's safe and you can lock up your possessions and so forth. The other thing is, in talking to a lot of people in the downtown east side, many people would like to work. But they can't apply for jobs because they don't have an address. So if you could even create a little tiny village or modular housing on a site so that people have an address to apply for jobs, you're beginning to help people in ways that right now we're not assisting them. It's uh, an interesting one. And uh, thank you, Michael, for joining us and for sharing your expertise on this and for keeping this discussion going. Uh, Appreciate your time today. And I appreciate your interest in it. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Thanks so much for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, we are taking a look at a business that is celebrating 40 years. And this is Kins Farm Market. 40 years as a local community grocer. And Victor Lau is joining us now, Chief Operating Officer, also a third-generation grocer and son of Kinwa Leung and Queenie Chu. Victor, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm very excited to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Well, 40 years is such a great accomplishment, and I think everybody will have been to a Kins Farm Market at some point, probably has one in their community, hopefully is familiar with Kins Farm Market. Take us back to, uh, as I mentioned, your third-generation grocer. How did it all start? Well, it's quite a fascinating story, Jill. I mean, um, my stepfather and his immediate family, my, my aunt, uncle, and his parents, they came over in 1981, immigrated from China, Guangzhou, and they came over here pretty much penniless, uh, just their shirts on their back. They had to borrow money, actually, from his grandparents just to be able to afford the flight. So they settled in here. They moved into Chinatown into about a 200-square-foot attic. They slept like sardines, basically, side by side by side. And as the story goes, as they looked up to dream, 
think about the future, all they saw was black. And it wasn't because they turned off the lights. It was because the entire ceiling was covered wall to wall in cockroaches. <laughs> and the floor had, had mice. So it was really a story of very humble beginnings. Um, from there, they really worked hard to try to find their path. They did some odd jobs at restaurants, even working for free. Then about two years later, in 1983, they, they thought, you know, why don't we give, uh, give it a shot at Granville Island? There seems to be a lot of people over there. And they opened an eight-foot table. And at that time, that was only about $18 to, to rent a table <laughs> to, to sell some produce. And it really started from there. Wow. And from there, and, and how long did it take then from renting the, the table and going from that table to actually having a standalone store? It took about four years. So uh, my stepfather would go very early every morning to all these different farms all across Metro Vancouver and Fraser Valley and looking for produce. And he would bring that back and sell the freshest produce on the stand, became very popular. So they they decided to open the first brick-and-mortar store um, in 1987 on Number 2 Road in Blundell, coincidentally, where we're having our anniversary celebration tomorrow. So if you're free... Please come on by at 1230. Wow. And did, did you ever think that, that you would also get into the grocery business and that you would follow and it would, may, it would stay in the family like this? Not at first. I mean, I always wanted to get into business, I thought, and entrepreneurship. So after I graduated from university, I think it was just perfect timing. My mother had asked me, what do you plan to do? I was wide-eyed. I wasn't sure. She said, we could use a little bit of help if you're interested. And I thought, you know, why not? So I joined that business, and lo and behold, you know, now it's about 19 years later, and I'm still here. So (laughs) things are going all right. Sounds like it, for sure. I understand, too, and I know that farming is very much, uh, it's a, it's a a passion for a lot of people. You have to love it to to do Mm -hmm. it, but it's also the the camaraderie. And, and even though farms, they might be competitors, there's, there's a lot of people looking out for each other. And I know that you've been affiliated with, with local farmers, with Mm -hmm. with local businesses as well. How has that kind of helped as far as your business, Kins Farm Market, to, to continue flourishing? Well, it's helped tremendously. I mean, there's no competition for us. We we love the local farmers. They've really supported us through these years along this journey to get to us to where we are today. Um, they've worked hand in hand with us in terms of their supply, what they need to move, what they need to harvest, because this is a very highly perishable industry. And if they don't have an outlet for that product, it becomes their waste. So we've always worked very closely with them to understand what their needs are and try to help them bring that to market. And what have some of the challenges been, even in the past couple of years, with the, the price of things going up and, uh, and, and, and groceries especially, uh, have there been challenges with, with maintaining those price points that people are okay with and making sure that, that you're still able to make money as this is your business as well? Right. Yeah, I think we've been quite fortunate over the years. Actually, we were just reflecting on that just the other day. We we found in the past year our retail prices actually have come down compared to the previous years. And um, that's really a result of working really closely with our growers, our vendors, and understanding the different needs. So there's different grades, there's different sizes in produce, there's different varieties. So we're able to spot market by uh, the best quality produce that also has that best value at that moment. So we're not committed to any long-term contracts or large, large buying scales. We, we really try to work very um, hand in fist on that and just in time. 
And I would imagine too, it's it's all about kind of not that you can be a mind reader and know what people right. are going to be purchasing, but keeping everything fresh and not having at the end of the day all of the things left over and, and trying to, to to figure out kind of how much people are going to be purchasing. Yeah, that's really highly unpredictable. I mean, with produce, you never know because what you're getting today is it's not what you're going to get tomorrow. It, it's so weather dependent. We always say here it's the closest thing to the stock market because everything is so up and down all the time in terms of quality and pricing and varieties. So you have to be able to react very fast and be very passionate ab- about what you're doing. Do you find people to uh, as well in that th- there are other places people can go, whether it's big box stores, uh, other places to buy produce, but do you tend to have uh, kind of a, a, a clientele that they want to shop at the smaller grocers, at the independent grocers, and will make a point of doing that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's what makes us stand out from some larger box stores. We're not a one-stop shop, but we really um, are a tight-knit community. And people want to support local businesses like ours. And while a lot of uh, larger organizations are gravitating more to automation, self-checkout, really for us, the foundation is that personal touch. So we, we are always looking to connect with our customers. And even to this day, we have people looking for my stepfather and mom from 30 years ago. And they would ask, are they, are they in this particular location today? And we would say, oh, no, how, how, how can we help you? And they just recall fondly, no, I just wanted to say hi, because I remember 30, 35 years ago coming in when I was younger with my parents, and they really understood what we needed. And we were just so happy to be able to come into your stores. So that's something that we're trying to convey now to our staff, or affectionately known as kinsmen, um, that is, a lot of it is that personal touch and it's evoking that positive emotion. You know, people aren't going to remember that they bought a banana from you and what price it was 35 years ago, but they remember that you made their day a little bit better. Oh, for sure. It must have been long hours, though, uh, that your parents put in and your grandparents. It must have been uh, certainly a lot of hard work. Oh, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, this is a very blue-collar industry. And, you know, back in that day, the story they tell is even though they work from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., at nighttime, they would still have asparagus to pack. So they would race each other to see who can pack the most or bundle the most asparagus before you're allowed to sleep. So my my stepfather often won that race because he was the most tired and he wanted to get to bed soonest. (laughs) Uh, Is it still, still long hours for you? Yeah, it's it's unavoidable, I think, in this industry because, again, everything is so perishable. So you have to be really on top of it to deliver that quality and that freshness to the consumer. So we start early and, and sometimes we go a little bit long, but we love what we're doing, so it doesn't seem like work. That's a good way to to look at it, for sure. Uh, is it still expanding as far, again, going from that table, the first grocer at, uh, grocer at Granville Island to having uh, so many brick-and-mortar stores? Is it still expanding at this point beyond, or, or do you think it will go beyond 23 stores? Yeah, we certainly hope so. I mean, our goal is to be in every community. Um, it's really important to us to provide convenient accessibility to healthy consumption choices for all the communities that we're so lucky to serve. I I would imagine, too, there's a a lot of of giving back or a lot of of paying it forward when you talk about the mentors. And I know that uh, you had singled out as well and your parents had singled out uh, the uh, um, uh, Mr. Gillespie with Cobb's Breads and local farmers and and people who have provided mentorship. And then in turn, I I would imagine that that you too would be, be giving that back. 
Yeah, that's really part of our purpose. So over the years, we've tried our best whenever the opportunity arises to give back to various uh, charities and organizations that are near and dear to us. We've worked with BC Cancer, Heart and Stroke Foundation, Children's Hospital, VGA, Trishman Hospital, UBC, um, wherever we can, local schools, anything, anywhere we can give back and have the ability to do so, we, we try our best to always make that happen. Well, it is a great story and what a story of success. And it sounds like it's going to be a very, very interesting celebration that's happening tomorrow. So we will leave it there. But Victor, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Hope to see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.